Hello, and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. We have assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and with the help of our listeners, we are assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Jerry Goldsmith's score to the 1979 sci-fi horror classic Alien. Alien was written by Dan O'Bannon, was produced by Gordon Carroll, David Geiler, Walter Hill, and Ronald Shusett, and it was directed by Ridley Scott. Andy, what's Alien like? Alien is an atmospheric, tense horror movie about terrible things that befall the seven-person crew of a deep space industrial freighter. That seven-person crew of the spaceship Nostromo is played by in no particular order, John Hurt, Harry Dean Stanton, Tom Skerritt, Ian Holm, Yafet Koto, Veronica Cartwright, and Sigourney Weaver. And a cat. That's right, and Jonesy. So the ship is on its long journey back to Earth, during which the crew is in suspended animation, but they are awakened by the ship's computer because of an emergency distress signal that they've picked up that they are obligated to investigate, and they do, and it doesn't work out well for them. Good enough? Yeah, good enough. All right, so sometimes we start these things and we give a little rundown of our history of these movies and our feelings about the movies coming into it, which feels especially worthwhile here because what we know about John brought up (laughs) on our previous Jerry Goldsmith episode about The Omen is that you don't really like scary movies. You don't really get why people want to watch scary movies. The appeal doesn't make sense to you. It's true. From your point of view, what's this movie worth to you? I like this movie. You do? Okay. Do you? Yeah, I do like this movie. I like this movie. I mean, my, my hesitancy about scary movies, as I said last time, is heavily tempered by how much I like space movies. So that helps a lot. I mean, it's kind of a space is scary movie. Yeah. But I think the important way that it differs from something like The Omen is in what its attitude is about why it is scary and what the relationship is between the scarers and the scaries, Mm -hmm. that is a difference in that relationship between the movie and its audience that, gosh, I think is a difference that was felt by Ridley Scott and his editor in making this movie. And is it a difference that's felt by you? Does this seem like a more useful movie in your dream life or does it feel just as much? My dream life. You know, like... You said, why would people seek out things that are scary? Do you get why people would seek out this horrible, horrible experience that happens to these people? Does this movie's particular nightmare have any appeal to you? I guess it does. Or do you just sort of put up with the nightmare aspect because you like the spaceship aspect? Can it be both? (laughs) 
I don't know, the nightmare of a monster who is picking off the characters in the movie one by one. Spoiler. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, this monster really spoils this trip. Let's just say seriously, <laughs> this is, as always, a spoilerful show. We're just going to talk freely about everything that happens in Alien. This would be a very silly way for you to find out things that happen in Alien if you don't already know what they are. I bet you already know what they are. Consider this the spoiler break. Eh, okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, all right. Anyway. I actually don't have a lot of experience with movies where there is, you know, a monster or a chainsaw wielder who is picking off our characters one by one until we're down to the last survivor who has to battle it out. I wouldn't say that's like a <laughs> a fun nightmare for me to inhabit, but the particular skin that this movie puts on it is, I think, undeniably compelling, right? I agree with that. I also feel like there's that movie here. There's the slasher, you know, stalked by a monster movie. And there's almost a separate movie in the first slow, quiet half of the movie before the monster gets unleashed. Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah. I think my feeling about Alien has always been that the first half is really remarkable, something special, a kind of masterpiece of this particular atmosphere. And the second half is a monster movie where they all start to die. And I'm less interested and less moved by that. You know, everything up to the first monster death is remarkable. I would say up to and including the first monster death is pretty remarkable. Oh, 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 well, yes. I meant the first adult monster death, yes. If you mean the classic breakfast table scene, of course, that's astounding. On the commentary track where Ridley Scott is watching his own movie, when the thing actually bursts out, he sort of goes like, oh, ooh, that's, uh, that's heavy. <laughs> <laughs> that's an unforgettable horror for a reason. Yes, I meant everything up to when the rubber monster suit <laughs> makes its first appearance yeah. has been an amazing movie. And then after that, it does feel like some kind of gear shift happens where, well, now it's just about who's going to survive, which is a little different from the truly cosmic horror kind of scale of what's disturbing about the first half which really does seem to be kind of about the nature of the universe and our place in it and and it's treated with this 70s movie realism yeah that's what's so amazing the tone it, exactly it's this very raw feeling people talking over each other and for as much as the set is so expertly and imaginatively dressed as this workaday spaceship you know it all feels kind of a little found footagey it feels a little you know unadorned and the dialogue the characters the acting it's all this wonderfully unamazed yes matter of fact matter of fact they're all talking about kind of working concerns yeah mundane stuff you know, the company makes us do these things who's getting paid enough uh resenting each other just like workplace realism yeah which makes this wonderful tension with the sense put on through the production design and the situation they're in of just a horrible hostile universe bearing down on them to me that's the special combination in this first half of the movie yeah i agree that's well articulated and it feels great i just loved being in that world and having that tension yeah between incomprehensible cosmic depths and just business just spaceship business that i think represents a different filmmaking attitude than 
Well, then certainly existed in the omen that we talked about Goldsmith having scored a scant three years earlier. Right. And that's point of reference for us also, because I think it's the only other movie that we've talked about in this entire podcast that would be classed as horror, right? Uh, That might be true. Yeah. Something has changed from the omen to Alien in the attitude that the film wants to put over on its audience right? There's a different sense of the degree to which the movie knows that you're watching a movie or wants you to think about other, like how many movies has this movie seen? You know what I mean? There's a different feeling. One of the things I kept noting as I was going through this movie is how incredibly influential the details, but even more than the details, the general feeling, the recipe, the angle from which the fantastic is delivered on the characters. Yeah. The angle of attack and the camera style. I mean, Ridley Scott's approach with having the camera float through these empty spaces ominously. And empty space hallways. The amount that it wants to sort of leave you out in the cold with this production. Yeah, it wants to leave you alone with it. Part of its effect is to just put you there and just show you the things and not overplay its hand about telling you what you should think about these things. Yeah, it provides an environment. So much of that camera work is about feel surrounded by this. And the sound design, the beautiful sound design, I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but it's to surround your headspace with this environment. And now you're going to have a sort of environmental reaction to that room. I think this style is sort of obviously a reaction to the, you know, golden age of Hollywood style, the grand show kind of style of the 50s and 60s. You know, you're here to be taken to a show and everything is big and grand and movies and therefore every aspect needs to be pumped up and demonstrated to you and the more detached and realistic feel of 70s movies that doesn't package it so thoroughly but lets the lack of packaging be its own packaging this comes from a style that assumes that yeah you've seen movies but this is uh something else now now you're seeing something real all right the setup here the suspense here is all too (laughs) obvious why john why are you talking about the big demonstrative style and how this is in a different style i think people who know the topic of this show can kind of (laughs) guess where this is going so (laughs) Give us some sense. How do how do the words Jerry Goldsmith relate to this? Well, Jerry Goldsmith is the name of the composer. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. That helps me feel a little more settled. Jerry Goldsmith, all-time great Hollywood composer. We've talked about him on our show many times now. Got the job to score this movie. He wrote a lot of music for this movie. When you went to see this movie in 1979, and if you still go to see this movie now, You don't hear a lot of the music that he wrote for this movie because Ridley Scott and his editor, Terry Rawlings, who had been a sound editor and a music editor and got a promotion for this movie to be the film editor as well, and I think wound up being sort of a real director whisperer in terms of the music of this movie to Ridley Scott over the course of the editing. The two of them did not use a goodly portion of the music that Jerry Goldsmith wrote for Alien and repurposed a lot of what he did write, put it in different places than he intended it. What's more, they stuck in music from elsewhere, music that Goldsmith didn't write, 
They also threw in music that Goldsmith had written for a previous movie. I believe that this was because they had a different conception of what kind of movie this is and what its feel should be. And it's very interesting because decades after the film came out, there were DVDs and CDs that were put out that featured the full original score the way Jerry Goldsmith originally wrote it for the movie. So you can really go back in and compare and contrast what Goldsmith thought was going on and what Goldsmith thought was the point between that and what wound up in the final cut. And it's fascinating. And I guess that's what we got to do now. This has for a long time been a popular topic among film score geeks because Alien is a classic movie that everyone has seen and a lot of people love. And Jerry Goldsmith's score is pretty widely recognized as having a lot of really wonderful music in it. Yeah. And they aren't always in the same place at the same time. So (laughs) there's a perennial mock debate to be had there. So... Give me a sense what faction you're with here. Are there any places where you think Ridley Scott was right and Jerry Goldsmith was wrong? And are there any places where you think Jerry Goldsmith was right and Ridley Scott was wrong? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Me too. Yes. (laughs) There are parts of this movie where I have always felt like the music isn't quite the right music for this movie. Yeah. On the other hand... Like I said before, I've always kind of seen the movie as, well, the first half is one way and the second half is another way. The movie's got a lot of different things going on in it. So it's a big, complicated case. All right. So maybe we should start at the beginning then, because this dichotomy between what Goldsmith's first instinct was and what Ridley Scott, you know, made the movie wind up to be is apparent right off the bat in the main title. Yeah, the main title, in addition to being essentially the identity of this movie because it's the main title, it also is the focus of this question because Jerry Goldsmith wrote two versions, one according to his own take on the movie, and then after Ridley Scott said, no, please rewrite that according to these specifications, he did that. So there are two versions of the main title, and we can compare and contrast them quite directly. I think the crux of the difference comes down to this theme. You hear it in Goldsmith's original first blush attempt at this. You hear it enter on a solo trumpet. The track goes on from there to expand out with this melody and to state it beautifully all across the orchestra. Gosh, this gets across what? This gets across the grandeur of space, nobility. It has this kind of melancholy vigilance. I don't know. We've got Goldsmith's actual words about what he's conveying here. Are any of them melancholy vigilance? Fingers crossed. (laughs) And I guess I approached Alien that way. There was this air of mystery, but there was sort of a beauty to it and the unknown. And I thought, well, let me play the whole opening very romantically and very lyrically. And then let the shock come as the the story evolves. In other words, don't give it away in the main title. So I wrote this very nice main title it was there's sort of mystery, but it was it was a lyrical mystery. 
don't give it away in the main title, huh? Here's where I want to jump back and revisit a little bit of our conversation about the omen. Yeah, we have to. Yeah, on that episode, we spent quite a while talking about why is there such sweet, sweet music in the first act of a movie that everyone knows is going to be about Doom because the main title was about Doom. Yeah, so brief recap. (laughs) Main title, The Omen, sounds like this. As you would expect. And then very soon afterwards in The Omen, we hear the love theme from The Omen, which sounds very sweet, even to the point of being saccharine. Very, I think we even dare to say 70s cheesy about it. Yeah, you were down on this very much. I defended it. I was down on the theme. Well, I always acknowledge that it's a beautiful melody and that all of the music, qua music, that Goldsmith writes is beautiful. And I certainly want to make sure I have that on the record for all of the discussion to follow in this episode as well. He's a terrific composer. The quality of what he's putting out is not to be questioned. It's just the attitude and the alignment of that attitude. So for the omen, I just didn't want to hear this sweet, utterly guileless, unburdened, lovely love theme. Because he had just played the main title, and I know what the omen is going to be about, and it sure enough really, really is about that. Here it is sounding like that. What good is it to tell me, oh no, everything is fine, everything is as fine as this music is, and then to go on to what is uh, characterized by the other music. That's a recap of your position. A recap of my position is I defended it. I articulated brilliantly why it's actually a good choice. Okay, so go listen to that episode if you want. Anyway. Yeah, the crux of what you said is that he first needs to show you what it is that is being horrified. The status quo that is good before it turns bad. We need to understand why it's good and we need to feel that goodness. Yeah, and also because you know it's going to turn horrific, playing something sweet has the unspoken horror of knowing that it's doomed. If at the beginning of a horror movie, you see a sweet little girl walking down the street with her dolly, the more saccharine it is, the more you know with your evil mind how deliciously doomed she is. And I feel like that's going on in The Omen. Like, it's sweet so that you can go, oh, man, bad stuff's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, well, this bothered me. I My antenna to sense what the movie wanted from me got, you know, twanged because I just felt like you're lying to me and you're deliberately misleading me. And it makes me think about the filmmakers, and it takes me out of the movie and makes me think about the machine that made the movie. Mm -hmm. I think Ridley Scott had a reaction to this original Alien main title that Goldsmith wrote that was something like my reaction to The Omen, that just wanted to say, what are you trying to put over on people? Because in exactly the same way that the love theme to the omen wants to establish and give credence to the good parts of life before horror enters, this music about the awe-inspiring but mysterious nobility of outer space is the baseline, is the thing that will then have horror applied to it. So Goldsmith feels like we need to get this established first. Ridley Scott said no because this tells you too much about me, the filmmaker, trying to do this to you. 
I want the audience to feel left alone. I think I hear that theme a little differently. I don't think that it is about something good that the alien is opposed to. My big take on this score is that Goldsmith, who said that he remembers when the movie was screened for him, it uh, scared the crap out of him. He said he found it incredibly intense. It seems to me that he then wrote a score that, rather than contributing to that terror that he felt, tried to make sense of it and process it. (laughs) He tried to soothe himself? Yeah, tried to cope by comprehending it. And I feel like this theme that he was going to have as the main title and also was going to have as the end title, we'll eventually talk about why you don't hear it there either, Yeah. but that this bookending defining theme of Alien was going to try to parse the story of Alien and give it a humanist meaning. I don't think that this is a theme about good things. Okay. But it is, as he said, a theme that sees space as having a certain romance to it. Perhaps good things is a little oversimplified, but it's sort of the theme of the baseline. It's the theme of where things are pre-horror. Huh, I don't know. I hear it as... I mean, it's a really lovely theme. Oh, it is. In its uncertainty, in its questioning quality. But it's the noble, it's the intrepid questioning of exploration. It's not the questioning of, is something going to get me? It's a little more mystical than that. The intervals, it's up a tritone and then up a fourth above that. I mean, the two classical things that this reminds me of, one is a famous piece by Charles Ives, The Unanswered Question, where a trumpet plays something quizzical and weird over and over against a kind of spacey backdrop of strings. And there's no satisfactory answer to it. That's the philosophical point of the piece. This solo trumpet kind of conveys open-ended philosophical questing with no resolution, with the off-balance feeling of not really being able to answer the big questions. And the other thing that it sounds like to me is this chord, this harmony that he starts out with here. There's a C in the bass and then B flat, E, A. This chord is most of the notes of the chord that was used almost exclusively as the only chord he would use in the late career of the very weird Russian composer Alexander Scriabin, who was a dedicated mystical obsessive. This was his mystic chord. I mean, I'm not sure that it's a reference on Goldsmith's part, but it could be. There's so many uses of this chord, and if you've ever heard a piece by Scriabin, you'd think, oh, well, there's that chord. And the reason I'm taking the time to mention it is because it's often called the Prometheus Chord because it's highlighted in this piece called Prometheus by Scrabin, which is what they called the alien prequel, which seemed like a weird coincidence to me, so I wanted to say so. But anyway, both of those references, that's how this theme sounds to me, and I think that whatever Goldsmith's point of reference was, that's the meaning he was trying to get into it, this sense of a mystical uncertainty that is not... It's certainly not a horror movie threat, but it is also not a comfort. You have to look out into the void and not know what you're looking at. Well, 
I hear all of that in that first chord, yeah, and that initial trumpet gesture, those three notes. And then the way that theme continues to worm around. Oh, where, where are we going with this? Then, yes, you're right. Then the B material, the second half of the concept, which is that he takes that da-da-da-da rocking figure yeah. and harmonizes it in more of a French Impressionist, you know, nature, la mer kind of way, like, oh, the clouds are blowing by. Or there's some sense of some beauty. Yeah, well, not the clouds are blowing by, the stars, right? I mean, I just... Yeah, that's right, the nebulae. I can't help but feel that this is about, golly, isn't space great? Isn't space amazing and awe-inspiring and, you know, perhaps a little scary because of just how awe-inspiring it is? I couldn't help but think of other classic, hey, look at space music that this feels akin to. Mm Mm-hmm. Like the planets, or yeah, like Holst's the planets, exactly. And then you know things for which these are common influences, like well, like a movie that he scored the same year as. Yeah, I was going to say other music by Jerry Goldsmith from 1979. Yeah, other <laughs> music by Goldsmith for movies that came out in 1979, like Star Trek. Now, Jerry Goldsmith didn't write the original TV music for Star Trek, but he wrote the music for the first Star Trek motion picture. Oh, yeah. And miles of Star Trek to come after that. He became the Star Trek guy. Yes. But a few months after being told that he hadn't quite been as much of the alien guy as he thought. And it does seem like some of the ethos of this is repurposed more happily as a Star Trek thing. Yeah, exactly right. I think the overall feel of... I mean, I'm cycling around these same words, grandeur, nobility, uh, intrepid, exploration. That's what I hear in this music. It feels very much akin to Star Trek. And hey, that first trumpet gesture, those three notes, maybe not a coincidence that they are very close, you know, nearly the same exact contour, just a little bit of a tweak from the beginning of the Star Trek intro, Space the Final Frontier music. Which, again, was not written by Goldsmith, it was written by Alexander Courage for the original TV show, but totally speculative on my part, but it seemed plausible that Like, he had the Star Trek theme kicking around his head because he knew he was going to be working on that. And he thought, well, Star Trek is, you know, solidly about how great space is. This is about, you know, space starting out is great, but then bad stuff happens. So what if I just take this phrase and insert a single half step into it? Just take that first interval, stretch it from a fourth to an augmented fourth, and then put the same fourth on top of that. I think it's there to be at least speculated about I'm actually pretty dubious that there was any influence of the Star Trek TV show on this, but it certainly bears a resemblance to his Star Trek theme that he then went on to write in that it's a trumpet reaching upward because the human spirit reaches upward. Right. So in this case, it's his trumpet reaching upward and the reach is a slightly uncertain or tension-filled reach. Yeah, I hear a strain in this. I feel like if you sync it back up 
If you watch the end of the movie that no longer has this theme in it, but with this theme over the end credits, after hearing Sigourney say, The Last Survivor signing off, what it conveys is kind of that security is always incomplete at best, that even the survivor is still in an unsettling, unknowable universe. Okay, but I, I hear a little bit more knowability in it than you do, I guess. And I just wanted to ask you the question that I feel like Ridley Scott wanted to ask Jerry Goldsmith. What is this the theme of in this movie exactly? Yeah, my theory is that to Jerry Goldsmith, it was the theme of why we put ourselves through this movie in the first place. That's why I started asking you, as someone who doesn't get the point of scary movies, does this movie have a point for you? Because the version of this movie that Jerry Goldsmith envisioned when he wrote this hour-long huge score with this theme as its keystone, I think it was a conception of what the point of the movie was, what the point of this ordeal was. And so that's what I hear it as the theme of. It's the theme kind of of surviving in the face of this hostility and trying to make sense of it. I think he thought that was the theme of the movie. I feel it a little differently than that. And certainly Ridley Scott did, because he told Goldsmith to rewrite the main title without that theme, without any hint of that theme. That's right. Without the swelling grandeur that that theme moves through. And I mean, listen, this is great stuff. We always talk about interesting effects that Goldsmith employs. He has such a great timbral sense. It's a strength of his, and I kind of feel like he is aware of it as a strength of his. He came up with a few ideas of cool stuff that he could put here. You know, they didn't want big music to do what big music can do. Then fine, I'll put this stuff. And it's, it's all cool stuff. Uh, it uses a technique using something called the Echoplex. It's basically like an analog delay plugin. You take a recording and then record it echoing against itself, and you record the echo of the echo, etc., but totally analog style in a box. Yeah, with a physical loop of tape that's going around and around. And so he applies that to this percussive technique of playing a note with string instruments called colenio. Yeah, where you hit it with the bow. Right. With the hard part, with the wood. That's what colenio means, with the wood. But anyway, this is by design a more ambient and mishmashy and. Uh, Does mishmashy mean something other than ambient to you? I suppose it has a valence of. Uh, being dismissive? Well, of being thrown together, of being a little bit uh, higgledy piggledy. <laughs> now, is higgledy piggledy different than a mishmash? <laughs> I suppose it has a valence of it, being uh, <laughs> flafferty rafferty. You know who was dismissive of this piece was Jerry Goldsmith when asked about this later. He was annoyed. He was annoyed that he had to rewrite it. He was annoyed at what he was told to do for his rewrite. 
He said, perhaps exaggerating a little bit, but maybe not that much, he said that the original main title piece he had written took him a day to write, and that this replacement took him five minutes. Yeah, it's probably not that much of an exaggeration because the replacement is, you know, these sounds here, fermata, and then, you know, chord, chord, chord. Then thunk, thunk, thunk with echo. And then repeat. And so, yes, you could probably write that in just a few minutes. Also because most of the ideas in this main title are taken from cues that he had already written for the sequence where they're on the alien planet later. I think Ridley Scott had said, why can't you write some music kind of like that? And so he just did. But I think this is really, really good. Oh, yeah? I think that Goldsmith's being dismissive of it might be because, for his ego, it's just too much to have to admit that his whole conception of the score turned out not to be the right conception, which is what the switch of this main title reveals. Yeah. The fact that this main title defines Alien makes the space in which the feeling of Alien occurs. It does, in a way, do a disservice to all this other music he wrote later in the movie that no longer really feels like it uh, makes sense. Well, this is one of the spots where I agree with Scott because I love this space's grand and noble music that he is obviously capable of writing and wrote tons of throughout his career. But it doesn't create the space of this movie right yeah well this movie is defined by whatever's in it so (laughs) and this isn't in it i think the biggest expression the clearest and broadest full expression of this theme that remains in the movie that did make it into the final cut is for the track called the landing when they're piloting the spaceship down to the alien planet to follow the stress signal and boy this sounds like space travel is great space travel is exciting and daring and bold listen to them boldly going we're no man etc etc as much as i love to hear music about this i felt like this cue wasn't quite this movie didn't you yeah i feel like lots of cues aren't quite this movie because what is this the theme of Again, is this the theme of the crew, of any person on the crew? Is this the theme of just space exploration itself? Those things, and having it sound like this, is not what you would pick the core theme of this movie to represent. So I will say that, yes, that music in that sequence feels like, who's the hero here? There's no hero. Who's striving and yearning and achieving? No one. But the disrespectful editorial abuse that this music has taken almost creates a useful effect there. (laughs) As the ship crashes, as they descend to the planet, the music just kind of goes away and they're left with the sound effects. Like, maybe you thought something good was happening, but this is what's actually happening, these noises. Yeah, but that's like, you know, that fall, that crash back to Earth, if you will, that ripping the ground out from under you is not a productive way to build a story like 
you can get a momentary effect out of it, but I don't think it's good for the overall world building. I'm certainly not saying, so you see, this was a brilliant plan and it all adds up. <laughs> right. I think there's a certain serendipity to it, but you know, it's strange to look at a beloved and effective movie and then say, yes, and this doesn't work. Yes, you're right. Because things do work. Things do they work. somehow work. You're right, they somehow work. Uh, you know, back to the main title here. The way this series of sounds makes me feel while we're watching this pan across the dark planet and just the vastness of space and you're watching the clever typography tricks while the title appears and that's it. These sounds with the echoplexed thunks and this keening noise, this spooky noise, which reportedly is the sound of a conch shell being blown through. And we'll talk more about peculiar instruments that he put into the score. Yeah, we will. This is apparently an echoed, blown end on through a conch shell, possibly with a mouthpiece carved in it, which is an ancient instrument. It's like uh, nocturnal sounds. It's like, you know, wind outside, the branches hitting the house, creaks and rumbles and crickets. What's out there? You're in some enclosure of safety, and then out there, there are all these noises. What are they? And that feeling informs the whole movie. That's why this is such a wonderful first musical sound in this movie, because that's the feeling on the spaceship. Right. They're in this fragile little enclosure of sense and safety outside of which is the unthinkable. And when they have to venture out into it, it's absolute nightmare. And then it, you know, literally gets inside them and destroys them. That feeling of this little fragile womb of safety that you're in, surrounded by just cosmic hostility, that's the power of this movie to me. And it's in the sound design and all of these, you know, the breathing inside the helmets sound, or it sounds like being on an airplane, background hums and things. Right. They all put across, there's just stuff that you can't handle out there, just outside, just beyond the walls. And so uh, all of this is to say, when they use some touching romantic music, it feels like, sure, that would be nice. (laughs) It would be nice if that story were going on. And then, oh, yeah, guess what? It went away. And now there's some dripping noises and uh, clanking and what's going on. This landing sequence cue, like I said, is the biggest expression of the theme that stuck in the movie. Jumping back a little earlier, when the crew is first waking up from hypersleep, Goldsmith put this trumpet there the same way. He's got this trumpet playing over the shots of John Hurt waking up. But he did. He did. Scott told him to rewrite this cue basically just to take the theme out of it. Here's that same exact sequence with no trumpet theme. And this is what you hear in the movie. So it's a total karaoke moment for you to sing the theme. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder if trumpet players take this cue as like a music minus one to practice that. Don't go to this movie with trumpet players. (laughs) In space, no one can hear the trumpet. Yeah, it had to be taken out because it makes John Hurt seem like he's going to be the hero if you have that music playing. Absolutely. Especially because that theme does kind of seem to attach to John Hurt later in the movie. You know, for his funeral, gets a statement of it. 
At that point, though, we're pretty sure he's not going to be the hero. But if we had heard this theme when he was waking up, and we had heard this theme in the main title, and then we hear it again for his funeral, it's about him. And more generally, it's about people. I mean, the implication of the theme, regardless of whether it's heroic or questioning or worried, is that the strivings of people matter. The ways people feel are on par with the things that happen. And some of the most shocking things about this movie are how biological and natural they make the alien in ways that you're not used to seeing on screen. In addition to incubating inside of John Hurt and then jumping out of his shirt. Also, like when they flip over the face hugger and look at its anatomy, it's made out of actual oysters and stuff. And it looks like cow intestines and yeah, a bunch of awful that they actually got from a butcher. Right. And when you see this actual glistening organic matter on screen, it gives you a feeling of, oh, this isn't like dealing with a story element. This is like dealing with the natural world, which... Yeah, is kind of, uh, is rough. <laughs> Nature's not intrinsically friendly. That feeling is in the movie. That's sort of the strongest thing about it. And so a humanist theme, any theme that kind of says, how do we feel about this? Whether or not it's heroic, it's still raising up the characters and their experiences on a level that in this particular movie, it's always going to be comforting to think that they have anything, that they deserve any music, that their <laughs> experiences are musical. Okay, so we're playing this hypersleep waking up cue. Let me take advantage of being here to point out something that I think Goldsmith absolutely nailed. We've been talking too much about stuff that maybe he got wrong or that he got wrong, according to Ridley Scott. Mm -hmm. For my money, the most effective musical idea in the movie that gels the best with really what the movie is putting across, it's these oscillating flute chords. I agree that they are wonderful and they work. Uh, I'm interested to hear your explanation of why, because the strange thing is that they are musically very closely related siblings to the most romantic part of the theme that you said was the least appropriate <laughs> stuff in here. Yeah. They're almost the same chords in the same pattern. It's still a sweet kind of impressionist instrumentation with these flute sounds. Why, when you slow them down and use them this way, what are they conveying that's so different? The other thing that he does that's different besides slowing them down and playing them nakedly on top of just this, you know, orchestral ambient pad is that now they're all minor. When it's the big romantic statement, one of those chords is a major chord. Now it's going back and forth between two minor chords. There's a certain distance between these two chords. There's a harmonic distance that bridging it, rocking between them, gets across to me just the perfectly calibrated amount of tension and mystery. This feels like the emptiness that the movie really wants to be about. These chords are clean and precise, but also uncertain. This is the cold and antiseptic reality of an empty and silent spaceship before the crew is awake. 
And I think this just is so exactly it. This is so exactly the sense of disquieting quiet. It definitely syncs up with the spaceship during the pans across one room after another of this empty spaceship with the hibernating crew. It definitely feels like it is the same thing as those environments. That said, I perceive it as a point of view music. It's not just environmental sounds. It does feel like it has a point of view, but it's a point of view that's more congruent with the cruelty of the movie. It is certainly not the point of view of the characters. It sounds like a fairy tale almost. It sounds a little magical, like it sounds like a wizard's workshop. But these people are all at the mercy of this fairy tale, and it's going to do with them what it likes. Later, when you see the ship after the funeral, the ship proceeds on through space, and, you know, Act 2 is over, we're going on to Act 3, and you hear this music again. It really feels like the curtain music. The curtains know about this, the characters don't know about it, and that's their loss. I think that's a great use of that music in that spot. To me, this is echoing with like the inexorable process of space travel. And it just goes on and on. It takes an incredibly long time to happen. The sense of things continuing and continuing to continue. This is just the inexorable way that it is. I think this is terrific. Does it sound to you at all like it has eyebrows to raise or it has a smirk to smirk at you? Yeah, a little, a little. It has, yeah, this knows more. You know, Ridley Scott wanted to show his audience that he didn't expect his audience to not have seen movies like this already. And this music to me feels like, yeah, don't worry, this is also seen those movies. This isn't trying to explain something new. This is meeting you where you are. Mm -hmm. And Scott really liked these alternating flute chords, so much so that he tracked instances of this material happening into places where Goldsmith didn't write it. And I think he made some mistakes in doing that. This marries so beautifully with the empty, cold spaceship. It does not want to go for when we encounter the alien eggs, when John Hurt climbs down into the wreck. (sighs) Yeah. Why is it there? Why did he do that? It shouldn't be there. That is a wrong decision. The music for this scene needs to show that something is really different. This is not the same old cold space stuff. The flutes are about the dispassionate coldness of space. Like discovering the alien eggs should not have the same dispassion. I mean, the way it reads is this is the deadly fairy tale and it knows something he doesn't know. They actually put in the sound of the eggs, like, whispering to each other. And it's kind of the same thing, like, ooh, we have a secret. Wait a minute, this movement. But yeah, it's not, I mean, this whole sequence, they go down to the planet, they go out into the fog and cross this alien horrible landscape and then find this ship and then they go in the ship and then they go down a hole and it's like, don't go in there to the max and each phase of it oh god they're deeper into nightmare it's one of the most effectively nightmarish sequences in a movie that I can think of and this is the sequence where Goldsmith's music really shines and is amazing and is the sequence from which that main title was sort of borrowed later these lonesome but unhuman flute tones back and forth the dark kind of airy sound of the alta flute 
and this amazing concept he had of the echoing steel drum, which is such a wonderful invention. It matches so well, and who could even think of how you'd match with it, but with the famous H.R. Giger designs for all of this creepy alien stuff that, you know, is that organic? Is it a machine? Is it some kind of... Yeah, yeah, I mean, Giger called it biomechanical. That's right. And yeah, I think Goldsmith wanted to do something biomechanical by... He instructs the timpanist to play the timpani on the sides of the drum, on the metal casings of the drum rather than on the drum head. Because, you know, the metal is the mechanical side of the organic instrument, something like that. Yeah, but the steel drum, there's something magical about how it's still got a wetness to it. Yeah, it's fleshy and machine at the same time. It's got the same kind of icky, you know, way that all these designs affect you. So they go deeper and deeper into this. It's just an amazing sequence. And Goldsmith had planned it that when they reached the ultimate of the nightmare, when he goes all the way up to the thing that's going to jump on his face, you know, this horror beyond horror, he was going to play this music with these boings. <laughs> Yeah, these are high harp chords that are again being echoplexed. Yeah, it's this descent deeper and deeper into alienness, and this is the most inhospitable place he goes to, and here's this sound of, like, you can't even breathe this air. It's so weird and wrong, and I wish they had used it. And when I synced it up for the scene, I thought, yeah, this this is what this scene properly should feel like. <laughs> Awful. Ah. Uh... I wish they had used some of it, uh-huh. but maybe this is, you know, Stockholm Syndrome from all the times that I've been told to take stuff out of my music for people, but I kind of get why Scott didn't want this and other stuff like this for so much of the rest of the movie that got taken out. All right, well, I'll say that I thoroughly agree about a lot of the music to come in the score, but this particular cue, okay. I feel like this is the sequence that works. This is the sequence where the music is the best because it's atmospheric music, because it's environmental music. And this squeaky stuff, to me, is still an environment. It's just an incredibly alien environment, and so that still works for me. But yes, as we now cross into the more monstery half of the movie... Yes, a lot of the music that Jerry Goldsmith wrote is not actually there to make you more scared of what's on screen. It's there framing and describing and musicalizing the scare as a way to make it bigger and more significant and sometimes more forceful. But his interest is not in kind of winding you up and kicking you around the way the movie is. And I just couldn't help but think it's because he doesn't like that. (laughs) This guy didn't like that. He (laughs) likes the musical embodiment of things. He found it satisfying to find what things were in musical terms. Yeah, exactly right. Goldsmith set himself the job of figuring out how to express the alien in musical terms. Mm -hmm to cast the alien among the players that he has at his disposal and to make a musical sound that is the musical form of the alien. Scott didn't want that. It's like Goldsmith was saying, see, I made an alien in the music. 
Scott was saying, yeah, yeah, I've, I put the alien on the screen. I don't want there to be an alien in the music. I mean, I could hear the imagined director in my head saying about a lot of this super cool Goldsmith music, I could hear the director saying, yeah, but that sticks out too much. It sticks out, you know, it calls attention to the music. And who am I, uh, certainly, to object to music calling attention to itself, but it's just a very particular point of view that Ridley Scott wants to get across where he doesn't want you to think about the film being made at all. He doesn't want you to think about any artifice. Because it's a horror movie, you are supposed to be shocked and horrified. The audience's actual minds, not their good sport participant mind, which is how you experience a lot of movies, which is great, which is a great way to experience lots of things. Yeah, it's a great way. It was a great way for me to experience The Omen. It was a great way for me to experience Planet of the Apes, a good sport participant. (laughs) Like, oh, it's fun to see people like put on this play. Well, okay, so those are both interesting cases. I was going to say, I remember in our conversation years ago about Korngold's Robin Hood, and we were saying, look, he writes a second sword fight in the orchestra that enhances your appreciation of of sword fights generally, because... The whole movie is dance-like. The whole right. movie is a stylized abstraction. Exactly And that's right. what you're enjoying. You're there for the theater of it. And when you're enjoying that, it's so great. And Scott wanted to make a movie that, like, yeah, exactly, knows you've seen those movies and is doing something else to you. But the two prior Goldsmith examples you bring up, those are both interesting cases. Planet of the Apes, there's a movie whose music actually felt comfortable never giving the humans a theme, never really saying, here's the human spirit. It did leave you out in the cold. He left you out in the atonal cold. Jerry Goldsmith clearly was capable of that. So is it that by 1979, he just wasn't feeling that anymore? Is it that he had terrible communication with Ridley Scott, which is what he said later, which seems entirely likely that they just didn't talk enough. They didn't convey yeah, it to that's, each other. that's the problem. Or is it that in Planet of the Apes, the spoiler there is that this is all actually human affairs. This does have to do with the human spirit. So that's for him not to give away. Alien, which is about an alien, <laughs> you know, he seems to have felt like I need to bring some human meaning to this thing because it's insufficiently on screen, even though that was the point. And then The Omen, I must admit that after watching this, it did make me think back to our Omen conversation where I think we both fell on the side of this movie is pretty low budget and low brains, but the music is the most impressive thing about it. I did think, well, the music was a big show of a lack of faith in the effects that the movie was putting across. See, that's a great point. And I wonder if saying the music was the best thing about it shows that the music was wrong. I'm not interested in criticizing that because I think that music is great and I don't have any interest in being on the side of the movie over the music in that case. But but there's an antagonism there, absolutely. And yeah, neither of us thought enough of the movie of The Omen to even care about its side in the antagonism between it and the music. But you're exactly right. The music isn't giving it credit for doing it at the same time. Like I made fun of in that movie when the kid's going around in circles on his tricycle before he knocks his mother off the balcony. Right. And I said, listen to this horrific music for him going around in circles on a tricycle, haha, to make fun of how the movie was so dinky compared to the music. Well, yeah, I guess what the music probably should have done was get way down underneath it and behind it and be the sound of, you know, the principles of this universe that are frightening to you rather than frightening events, which in fact aren't frightening enough to justify being played as frightening events. Yeah, that music is a big musical 
gesture, and you have to reckon with having a big musical gesture done to you as an audience member. So Goldsmith felt like, okay, I'll make a musical gesture that will be like the alien and what the alien is doing. The weird instrument, the unusual arcane instrument that he pinned a lot of his alien texture music is, it's this thing called a serpent, which is an archaic wind instrument. Like maybe you've seen it in a museum. They've got one in the, you know, old musical instruments exhibit in the Met in New York and I'm sure other places like that. Because it looks fantastic. If you have limited antique instrument space at your museum, you're going to want this one in there. It looks so cool. It looks super cool. Like get one, put it on your wall. That would be (laughs) actually, it sounds like a great idea. It's called a serpent because it looks like a serpent. It is curving back and forth. It's kind of a predecessor of a tuba, but it's a wind instrument. It's mostly made out of wood and it has a brass mouthpiece on the end of it and there are finger holes along this curvaceous serpentine tube that like has three or four big bends. Right, so it's a wood instrument, but it's not a reed instrument. So it's this kind of hybrid of sounds that we classify now. You think, well, an instrument with a brass style math piece is going to be made of brass and resonate like a brass instrument. And a wooden instrument is going to have a reed on it and resonate that way. And this has sort of some of both of those qualities, which makes it sound foreign to us. Right, it's kind of a cross between a bassoon and a tuba or something like that. Yeah, that is what the sound sounds like, like a tuba divided by a bassoon. A bassuba. (laughs) So Goldsmith wrote a lot of stuff for the alien using a serpent. Well, because that is like, oh, wow, that must be an instrument that an alien would play. Or that instrument, what, sounds like an alien? It's unusual and weird plus weird, I guess, is, you know, a way to characterize weird. I mean, it's part of a little alien ensemble of weird stuff that he put together here. He's also got a didgeridoo, which you've probably seen and heard. That's the Aboriginal Australian instrument that basically plays one low bass note. But in the score, it had two notes, and I thought, oh, it can play two notes, and indeed, I looked it up. You can get a toot note, they call it. Yeah, because it's all about the overtones, right? I do a good didgeridoo with my hands. You want want to hear it? I'm not going to be on the record as saying yes, John. You're just going to have to do it. A didgeridoo sounds a little something like this. I'm moving my hands in front of me. Yeah, can you do the toot note? Can you do the when you purse your lips note that I found out you can also do on a didgeridoo? I haven't practiced that. It's like a tenth above approximately. Well, yeah, so he's got a didgeridoo and a serpent and the conch shell and some other stuff. He's got a shawm, which is an archaic sort of predecessor of the oboe, a really big, loud double reed. He's got a steel drum that I mentioned. I mean, not to mention non-traditional playing techniques on the whole rest of the orchestra and a huge orchestra, all his usual tricks. Usual tricks. You called him irrepressible in <laughs> the only conversation. And, and yeah, he, like he can't stop himself from like, don't just hit the thing with the mallet. You're supposed to hit it with, hit it with the mallet from a different instrument or hit it with a mallet from a different instrument. And there's a piece of paper between the mallet and the thing you're hitting or, you know, hit it on the side, use the wrong mouthpiece He's constantly doing stuff like that. It's like almost too many to list in this score. Yeah, and they make great, great sounds. I have no cynicism about that whatsoever. I think that all that stuff is great. The highest note possible stuff in this score is really good highest note possible stuff. Anyway, the little alien, you know, concerto group, what do you call it? (laughs) Consort? The alien soloists. (laughs) He combines them 
into these sounds where the didgeridoo is going. <laughs> The serpent is often sort of doing a tremolo on the same note over and over. I think that this is brilliant stuff. The moments where it's really highlighted, it sounds like an animal noise. Which you have to listen to the restored... That's right, on the soundtrack. ...soundtrack score to hear, because it's just not in the movie. Well, there's one second where (laughs) you kind of hear this amazing alien's breath effect. Get out of the way, Lance! And it feels like, yes, some horrible creature that's not quite made of normal matter is breathing in your ear its hot horrible breath and that is brilliant whether it has a place in the movie is sort of a second question but i want to give him full credit for coming up with an incredible solution to the problem that he set himself the director didn't set him of creating this alien in sound right He set himself the problem of creating this alien in sound. And uh, (laughs) I I feel like I'm betraying composer kind here, but I understand the instinct for a director to take this out. I mean, first of all, about the serpent. It's an archaic instrument for a reason. It's not a very good instrument. (laughs) It's hard to play. It's like you can't really sustain notes on it to any real length. It's hard to keep it on pitch. It actually has a little bit of a pedigree of being used in film music that I bet Goldsmith was aware of and was inspired by. Sure. Bernard Herrmann used the serpent in the score to journey to the center of the earth when they're in the center of the earth and they're fighting a giant chameleon. And the serpent is more exposed there. Like, you can really hear it doing its serpenty thing. Yeah, all right. It's like you buy it as, sure, I guess that's a sound a giant chameleon might make or it's evocative of it. But, like, it's not a great instrument. It doesn't make a good sound. It's hard to control. It's hard to keep it on pitch. John, here's the guy I found on YouTube playing the serpent beautifully. Listen to this. My goodness, what control. But yes, all of the comments on this YouTube video are, I can't believe you're playing it so well, that instrument is hard. Trust me, I tried. <laughs> I think Herman might have just picked it because like a serpent for a serpent type creature makes a cute sense. Yeah, exactly. But you don't think that it sounds like alien breath? You don't think that it sounds like... <sighs> it sounds like the answer is no. No, I don't think... And I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jerry. I don't buy that the sound of the serpent instrument is the sound of the alien, like represents the sound of the alien, because you can tell it's not the alien, right? Like, yes, if this were a Prokofiev piece about an alien, (laughs) like, of course, yes, you would use the serpent for the alien because you have to convey it in musical poetry. But Ridley Scott doesn't want musical poetry. Ridley Scott is going to try really hard to come up with an actual sound effect of the alien and then to have music going, yes, and also here is my uh, interpretive performance of what it's like to do an alien, as artistically wonderful as that is, it's a different thing than the movie is doing. That kind of abstraction 
is a dissonant thing to ask the audience to grok at the same time as really being scared for their lives and don't go in there. It sticks out too much. I am horrified to find myself parrying all the times that I have been told it sticks out too much. And I get it. I get taking this out. I'm sorry. John, I'm sorry, but I was unable to listen to any of what you were just saying because I've spent the whole time trying to figure out how to make a joke about the duck bursting out of the wolf's chest at the end of Peter and the Wolf. (laughs) (laughs) No, I did listen to what you were saying. I was was totally on board with that reason for ignoring me. (laughs) Um, My take on this stuff, on the alien music, on the action music, on the cues for, you know, death number one, death number two, alien attack number three, I felt like the mistake in this music, and there is a mistake, I think, is that it is parsing the sequences into something cinematic rather than something visceral. And sometimes it was almost glaring that he's dipping into, not in the alien ensemble, but the rest of the orchestra, dipping into what really feels to me like a different tradition, a different style. When you see these gruesome close-ups of the, you know, silver teeth and lube-dripping lips of this horrible alien. It is KY Jelly, you're right. It's supposed to just make you insane, like in a Lovecraft story, like this is a thing no one should ever have to see. It's supposed to be overwhelmingly graphically disturbing. And Jerry Goldsmith is playing like, uh-oh, she's in trouble music. That could be from any, you know, war movie where someone's under threat and they need to run for their lives. It just sounds like big, big movie music. sequences he's playing descending chromatics i feel like that's old-fashioned is the wrong word because you can play descending chromatics it's 2022 and i'm still happy for someone to write that but it has to be but it is old-fashioned it has to be in the interest of experiencing that The music can be put to the end if that's the end in mind, but it seems so almost unwilling to acknowledge how gross the thing on screen is. You know, he reserves some shock effects for shocking imagery, again, which uh, Scott took many of them out, like when they cut John Hurt's helmet off his face and reveal the horrible crab, you know, smothering him. It's hugging him. It's hugging its face. It's a face hugger. Uh Uh-huh. Well, it looks like fingers gripping him. It's just a horrific image. Goldsmith did write a pretty horrific, right, set of, you know, musical events for that moment. My God. And Scott took it out because what's much worse is actually looking at it than having someone tell you, hey, get a load of this. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the point, is that he just wanted to give you a load of it, and he didn't want anything saying, get a load of this. Right. But I, you know, that's not fair to Goldsmith. His intention was not to say, get a load of this. It was to musicalize the experience of getting a load of it. Any musicalization, rendering anything into musical form is always going to be a comfort on some level. It's always going to say, well, yes, I understand that you're having this experience. Implicitly, your experience is being understood and recognized and shared, and so you're not 
alone with it. You're having a communal, ceremonial kind of experience rather than a raw one that you're just alone with. Oh my God, what is that thing on his face? My God. No one's helping me here. The movie isn't helping me, the characters aren't helping me, and the music isn't helping me. Even by saying boo, the music says we're in this together. Because boo, there's something social about saying boo. (laughs) So yeah, it was this constant turning of horrors into comprehensible horrors that seemed like the wrong move of this music. No matter how agitated and cool and exciting and wild he is with this music, which is so great to listen to. It was offering a different kind of experience, and my wish was actually that he had done more purely alien things. If he had written music that was just didgeridoo and serpent and incomprehensible sounds doing incomprehensible musical things, that might have worked. That might have gone along with what was happening for me. So that was my take. Not that those were sticking out. Although certainly he and the sound design people are stepping on each other's toes a lot. Basically, this is a movie that has sound design by people who kind of wanted the sound design to be the music and it has music by someone who kind of wanted the music to be the sound design. (laughs) That's exactly right. I've been on that dubbing stage and it's uncomfortable. I mean, the sound design wins in this. Like, the real score of this movie is beeps and alarms going off, awooga noises. Jerry writes of awoogas. He writes all kinds of whoops. The sound of the alien, the motif of the alien that the alien has a musical motif toward the end of the movie is kind of this ah, ah, which sounds kind of like the alarms that are on the soundtrack already yeah and Scott took a lot of that out and just let the actual sound effect ship alarms play like at the end of the movie when Sigourney Weaver makes it onto the shuttle by herself but oh no she's not by herself the alien made it there too and it's creeping up on her but she's sneaking into the spacesuit so that she can uh, blast it out into space the movie is cutting back and forth between Sigourney Weaver getting into the spacesuit and getting ready to implement her plan between that and the alien creeping up on her and Goldsmith's music very concertedly jumps back and forth between just like tension bed for Sigourney Weaver oh no what's she gonna do and then, oh, here's the alien stuff. And here's the, and here's the blat, and here's the crazy, crazy, crazy noises. And the music jumps back and forth, and Scott basically took out all of the music for when we see the alien. Because the alien is already the alien. Yeah, this creepy, quiet atmosphere music served the scene. Yeah. And the agitated, this is the frightening part music didn't. He didn't want the music to be the thing that you're scared of. He didn't want the music to be telling you that you were scared of it. And he didn't want it to be pretending to be the thing that it was scary. The music works when it is playing the sound of the universe in which such things are possible. Yeah. And there was room for that in a lot of these scenes, and Goldsmith didn't go for it, so they found ways around it. Yeah, so in addition to music that he wrote for different places in this movie appearing strewn about where he didn't put it, there winds up being music that, in fact, he wrote 17 years earlier for 
a very different movie that Terry Rawlings, that editor I mentioned, had used as temp music. In the DVD extra about the score where they actually interviewed Terry Rawlings about why he made the various choices he did, he says that Jerry Goldsmith is a wonderful musician, a brilliant composer, and of course a composer should be given free reign to do what they're inspired to do, but it should always be within the guidelines of the general mood and tone established by the temp score. That's what the temp score is for. Hmm. He basically seems to be saying, we only took out the stuff that wasn't like what we had made clear we wanted. Yeah, okay, so what did they want? This is what they put in. This was their instruction for what they wanted Goldsmith to do. It certainly sounds like something that Jerry Goldsmith could write for a movie because this is something that Jerry Goldsmith wrote for a movie in 1962. I think Terry Rawlings thought that using old Goldsmith score cues in his temp was a compliment to Goldsmith, was an attempt to fold the Goldsmith sound into, you know, the conception of the movie that was being worked out. But I don't think Goldsmith took it that way. Yeah, and I, I'm not surprised. They should have known that this wasn't going to be a helpful and complimentary thing to do, saying, oh, I made a fake U-score by taking random bits and pieces. You know, what we expect from you, Mr. Goldsmith, yeah. is to resemble this, like, collage of random things from your past. That's what you're like. <laughs> There's just something off-putting about that, I would imagine. Yeah, and I think he was off-put by that, and he was especially off-put when indeed they went behind his back to buy the rights to this music and put it in the film anyway, after he had written different new stuff instead of this. And he was really, I think, fairly uh, upset about this. And he got like notes from his friend saying, you know, beginning to repeat yourself, eh? So what is this music anyway? This is music that Goldsmith wrote again in 1962 for a movie about Sigmund Freud. I'm sure when Jerry Goldsmith heard this in the temp track, he felt like, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I know what that is music for. It's music for a movie about Sigmund Freud from 1962 with uh, Montgomery Clift. So they had temped this into the scene where they try to cut the facehugger off of John Hurt's head and it spurts out acid blood that immediately starts eating through the decks and dripping down and they run down after it and sort of burns itself out before it gets to the outside of the ship. I read about how the idea that the alien has acid for blood is like a clever screenwriting solution to, well, why don't they just, you know, shoot and kill it? They needed a reason that they were hesitant to spill its blood. Yeah, it's a great one. It's a great sci-fi, you know, gimmick. Sure. And then they put that exact motivation in Yafed Kodo's mouth. They had him spell it out. Right, when he says, uh, you don't dare kill it. A wonderful defense mechanism. So this piece of temp music was what they assigned to the racing after the drift as they jumped down from deck to deck. That crap's going to eat through the hull. That thing's going to eat through the goddamn hull. Come on. What's going on? This way. Goldsmith then composed this bit of excitement for that same moment.
I mean, it's intense. It's a lot. It's a lot. You know, the action on screen, you can picture it. It's just Tom Skerritt going down some ladders. Yes, there's an urgent reason, but it's not meeting us where we are. It's much bigger than the amount of excitement on screen or even in the audience's mind about this thing, which is interesting, which is exciting and threatening and worrying, but just not this much, not this whole orchestra, it seems to me. Goldsmith also composed music to build up to the intensity of the, you know, racing down to follow the dripping acid. In fact, they asked Goldsmith to rewrite this cue, and he did. Here's his first attempt. And they said, no, this is too much. He rewrote it to this. And they still took that out. Yeah, so they threw out all the parts of his cue, and they stuck with the temp, which it's one thing to say what he wrote isn't working, and it's another thing to say the best solution to this is for us to use some music that's not even from this movie. And I feel like you can hear that it's not from this movie, right? It sounds like it's by Jerry Goldsmith, but it does not relate to this score. Yeah, there's this, like, series of seemingly random-sounding notes that I guess they thought evoked dripping, you know? Yeah, I don't know. This doesn't seem right to me either. It feels like music about something that's very interesting rather than, (laughs) you know, this activity and threat that's going on on screen. I feel like they must have said, we need something that's about that active, about that much energy. And he wrote something with too much energy. And then, yeah, why did they say, so the best solution is to pick the random thing from his catalog that we used in the temp track, rather than going through this hour of music he wrote for us (laughs) to find something from this score that has that much energy. I mean, working with temp is a dangerous (laughs) and fraught endeavor, and it makes people do weird things. Yeah. They must have gotten to the point where they were like, well, we know it works with that. Yeah, exactly. We don't have time to figure out another way for it to work. I think that they thought what we need here is some nondescript spooky music. I think that that's kind of what this music sounds like. There it is. So I guess we should say whether in its original setting it was nondescript spooky music or what. This is the main title from the movie Freud, which doesn't really... I mean, we can discuss how Freudian this movie is or isn't. It's sort of strangely apropos that Freud has some relation to this movie, but that doesn't mean that the music... Because the computer's called Mother? (laughs) Yes, among other things. (laughs) Okay. Sometimes an alien is just an alien, Andy. Sometimes. I don't know if it is in this movie, though. Oh. You know, you can read people online saying they think this music is so perfect, they love it, it reminds them of this movie because it's the music from this movie. But it really has always seemed a little off to me. And uh, I was curious, what is it really supposed to be? So uh, I said we should go back and watch Freud. And we did. And we made a bonus episode about it. Can you believe that? Yeah. Yeah. If you want to hear the real story about what this music is before it became the acid-dripping alien music and other cues from Freud that wound up in Alien that we'll talk about in just a minute. You want to hear the real story of what that was? Believe it or not, we went and watched Freud 1962, and we recorded a whole bonus episode that's available to you on Patreon. Yeah, if you want to hear about the Freud score in its own right, check it out. Who doesn't? (laughs) 
like you said, there is more Freud in this movie. I also wondered, did you hear there's a part in the queue called It's a Droid where uh, Ian Holm reveals what he really is? That sounds like maybe that was also tempted with the main title from Freud because he wrote something that sounds just like it with the pizzicato flying up and down. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. I thought maybe he heard it there and thought, all right, I'll follow your lead here. Or maybe he's just being Jerry Goldsmith and he... This is what Jerry Goldsmith thinks to do. I mean, this It's a Droid cue got mostly taken out as well. And again, I I can understand them saying this is too much. I, I bet that those are the exact words that Terry Rawlings and Ridley Scott said to one another. This is too much. It's doing too much. Of the cues that are doing too much, this is one of my favorites. It's the one of the ones I'm closest to being able to imagine in the movie. I do think probably the effect of the scene is better the way they've done it, where they took out everything up until the moment when his head gets knocked sideways horrifyingly and it's revealed that he's a robot. Then they play sort of the shock of that. The music comes in with that, which is effective. But Goldsmith wrote this great robot music, which unfortunately starts to explain in advance to you that he's a robot, and that's the problem. But it's so good. Just the rhythm of this thing. When he's just standing there and staring, hearing this brutal off-kilter rhythm in the whole orchestra, it's exciting and it's kind of scary just in its rhythm. The way that the Planet of the Apes score could be scary in its musicality because the music was so angular. I feel like this sounds great, but... When you take it out, then there's something even more disturbing, which is that you don't know why this guy is sweating milk and being weird. You could guess that he's a robot, maybe, but you don't get a solid answer for a couple minutes of creepy screen time. And that is worse. That is more disturbing to the audience. Agreed on both counts, that this is super cool music and that the movie works better without it. Again, I don't think it was explicitly that they worried, oh, he's giving away that he's a robot. I think they just felt like we don't want our movie to be a movie that sounds like this. We want this to be a horror movie where you don't have your hand held through the fight, where you just have to deal with it. Like in classic horror movie style, you think that he's dead and then he lurches back to life and keeps fighting even when his head is knocked off. Sure enough, Goldsmith scored that. Goldsmith came back in with when his body is wrestling with Yafikoto and they took that out because they didn't want this to be a movie that goes like that it's just better to have the shock and the action of this be unpackaged and they did a nice piece of tracking other music in here when the scene starts and you see ian holm giving that inhuman stare they tracked in this burbling clarinets on the main motif da, da, da. yeah that is good ash open the door it's really good goldsmith didn't write it for right there but in the scenes when goldsmith was in the pocket of this movie 
he really supported it well. And I feel like some of this tracking against his will creates some really good scoring for the movie as it is. I think that bit was written for the Here Kitty cue. Is that right? Where like Harry Dean Stanton is looking for the cat. Right. Which is an anticipatory sequence. Goldsmith got the clue there that this was all about going, oh, something is coming. And whenever he was writing that on the planet, any scene where he was trying to write anticipation, the music is perfect. And it's a big part of the atmosphere of the movie because that's what the movie is doing, making the audience anticipate. Ridley Scott said this thing somewhere in the commentary about the long, long shots where the camera's just moving through empty space. He says they allow the audience to work. Huh. Well, probably the most notable such shot is the one that follows the famous chest-bursting scene. The baby alien bursts out of his tummy, and they all jump back and wonder what to do about it. And then it and then it uh, it runs off. And I think I think I remember at this point it it sings a little song. Is that right? No, no, John. I have a fuzzy. It's not. It's not it, goes, it does this right. Oh my God! You're playing it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I, I felt like I had to. But no, no, there's no music. And I think there was never intended to be any music for this scene. Goldsmith didn't write anything for this. But then, like, the next scene, the cut to this long pan across the spaceship hallway, Goldsmith did put something there that was taken out. Even this, it's not much, but it's asserting something. It's asserting something about, you know, where your head is in relation to your stomach. And Scott just wanted people to sort that out for themselves. I think also he was imagining how this was going to play in a big crowded movie theater. And he wanted to give the audience space to freak out. Yeah, it's that idea that the music is always helping you cope, Mm -hmm. even if... It's telling you that something horrible is happening. That is coping. When Scott says that the long shots allow the audience to work, that's just a guiding principle for the whole movie. If something horrible happens, yes, of course, the next thing that happens is you're going to have to cope. But Scott's idea is he's going to give you an environment in which to cope, but he's not going to show you what coping is. Right. You've got to figure it out for yourself. That's the work. Yeah. So the next bit of the movie that was tempt with cues from Freud and that Goldsmith wrote something new for, but the Freud cues made it into the final cut is the sequence where Tom Skerritt goes into the air shaft to try to fight the alien and meets his demise. Yeah, as anyone can see coming. Don't go in the air shaft in this movie. Come on. Come on. Yeah, Goldsmith wrote a whole piece for this that when I synced it up to see how it would work, it works pretty well. It had one thing in it that I wouldn't have imagined. In the moment when one of these metal irises that, you know, spin open that he's going through in the air shaft, there's a shot as it opens, and Goldsmith, I believe, was going to play this with a horn note building to, you know, Sforzando and cut off as though this was a moment of high tension. You could fear that the alien is going to be right there in that moment. The music would have created that moment, and that's not the moment in the movie as it is now. But anyway, what this cue builds up to in the moments of rising tension right before his death is this kind of asymmetric March of the Alien rhythm. Bump, bump, 
bum 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 Yeah, and there's our friend the serpent. Yeah, you're so skeptical about it, but I think this sounds great. You know, it's like in a lot of action movies, a lot of movies where there's a scene of tension that they play with an inexorable rhythm. Here the rhythm is unsettling because it's asymmetric, but it does keep coming at you. And yeah, it has this uncanny timbre to it. It just doesn't read as uncanny to me. It reads as all too canny. I think I think it's too earthy. It's too a little funny sounding. Well, I think that they took it out because it's too anything. It's just something that you have a thought about, you have a feeling about. Yeah, it sticks out. I mean, I think it's impossible to not feel like it's doing a Jaws thing here. Mm-hmm. I was having a hard time trying to articulate to myself why I don't think this is right for this, but Jaws is so great. I mean, the more I think about it in all these different contexts, the more I feel like Jaws is a kind of a miracle unicorn of a movie because it also has, you know, some of that 70s cinema verite realism to it, but it also has room for the most assertive music, not just the bum-bum-bum-bum stuff, but like this swashbuckling corn gold stuff and this weird Baroque fugue and how is that needle-threaded, I want to know. And why doesn't it work here? I think it has to do with Spielberg's camera style and editing rhythm. Yeah. Ridley Scott is doing something very distinctive here with leaving you alone with things. And Spielberg never does that. Spielberg is a storyteller always. And you always get that sense that you're being narrated to, even in the moments of quiet. So it has a much more natural coexistence with musical storytelling. It already is somewhat musical. Yeah, it's true. Spielberg never apologizes for things being packaged. You know, he wants to be the master of the packaging. And Ridley Scott here really wants you to appreciate that it isn't packaged. Well, this is a word packaged that we've used on the show various times, and it's a useful word, but it starts to be funny in this application because (laughs) this movie is a production design movie. I mean, he says, I believe in so many words, that he wanted to show off how good he was at production design in this movie, and you are in a glorious package of some sort. It's packaging on a different level. Because that's it's right in front of your face. It's what you're looking at. He's realized this realistic setting and set dressing, and he wants you to feel that there's nothing between that and the viewer. I mean, these long shots with the camera looking across an empty room is very artificial in a way. Whose eye is that? What's the point of view of this? Right, where are the cameras coming from? But he doesn't want you to think about where the cameras are coming from. And the music, this music that Goldsmith wrote, where the serpent is jawsing along for the creeping up alien, I, I don't know, makes you think about where the cameras are coming from. It's too descript, if you will. They wanted tension that was more nondescript. I think it's, dare I say, an indictment of this music from Freud that it kind of functions as nondescript tension. Check out that bonus episode if you want to hear more about what I thought about the music from Freud. (laughs) Well, all right. I want to be on the record as having a pretty different feel about a bunch of these things. I don't think that this music from Freud is a comfortable fit for this sequence. It builds at the right time and in the right kind of not overly motivic way. But the material before that... Dallas, hold it a minute. I mean, I I think I got... 
jumps out to my ear as a blatant imitation of the Bartok music for strings, percussion, and Celeste, which we talk more about on the Freud bonus. It's not something that Jerry Goldsmith would have done in 1979 for this movie, and it feels like a reference and a reach outside of this spaceship to some other thing. Yes, I've got it. Where? Somewhere around the third junction. Yeah, like you said before, for the acid scene, you can tell that it's not from this movie. And then you can really hear that the music is not from this movie the third time they use it, when she is looking for the cat at the end of the movie, and they use some more Freud music that you can clearly hear has a harpsichord in it. Right. Come here, boy. Come here. No, just kidding. You can complain about the serpent as much as you want, but a harpsichord doesn't have anything to do with this movie, and we're deep into the movie at this point. If he, at the beginning, proposed to us that outer space has a harpsichord in it, maybe he could have made the sale. I don't put it past him. I'm not saying there's anything intrinsic, but by this point, it just sounds like a harpsichord. Why is that happening? Yeah, it is a little strange to me that they let the harpsichord slide after being so sensitive to the other weird instruments that he proposed were the sound of the alien. But what I want to say to Goldsmith is, like, stem out your mix, man. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I was taught. When you deliver your score... You have to separate out the various elements, especially elements that are notable and that stick out. Put the melody on its own track. I mean, this was the lesson that was drummed into me. If the director on the dubbing stage doesn't like the sound of one instrument, but everything's mixed together in a single audio track, what's he going to do? He's going to take out the whole cue. But if you had a separate stem for the serpent and it was on its own fader... I bet this stuff stays in the movie. I mean, I'm half-joking because obviously this is the kind of consideration that really comes from the age of digital recording, and when you've got your own home recording studio, it's it's easier to stem out the notable melody instruments on their own track, or maybe they've recorded them separately. Uh, but <laughs> this is why. So, you know, you're giving practical advice from the practical world, but in terms of being a fan of film music, I feel like I would rather people uh, really compose stuff that has the value of being really composed rather than writing sort of modular stuff oh, and producing. Oh, uh, yeah, me too. Yeah, I always hate it when stuff I wrote gets kind of mixed and matched. And this is another thing that I wanted to say. The whole time I was like going through and comparing and contrasting what Goldsmith wrote to what happened in the original movie, I just kept wanting to be like a couples therapist for Goldsmith and Scott and just say, like, you you guys got to talk to each other. Yeah, well, they acknowledge that, or at least Goldsmith seems to have acknowledged that the problem was that he didn't get enough communication. Yeah. And then you know what happened to them later, right? They got eaten by an alien? Really, Scott went back to Goldsmith for his movie Legend. Goldsmith said, we got to communicate. You didn't communicate with me enough on Alien. And he said, they communicated like crazy. They talked all about everything. And then when the movie was released in America, they took out the Goldsmith music entirely. It was released with a different score. Yeah, well, it's a tough business. (laughs) Maybe we'll talk about that someday. Yeah, they, I don't know, they weren't communicating well enough. They they needed more therapy together. I certainly think that they needed to go to therapy about what happened at the end of this picture. Yes. Yeah. Because this seems to me to be the biggest offense. This is the real slap in the face. This I can imagine Goldsmith feeling like he was personally called out and slighted. Yeah. 
it's fairly unforgivable yeah. what happens at the end here. What happens at the end is there's the climax of the movie. They apparently decided that Goldsmith's music wasn't suitable, so they were going to use some other music. Let's talk about the details of that. But then the unforgivable part is then it goes to black and then the end credits come up and they decided to keep playing the other music instead of going to Jerry Goldsmith's end title. I cannot imagine why they did that. Do you have any idea why they thought that was the right thing to do? That is truly offensive. <laughs> it is truly offensive. I did come up with a very rough idea of a motivation. So Ripley finally knocks the alien out the airlock door. It's tethered to the ship with a harpoon. Uh, and it's floating around, and then finally she kicks on the engines, and it burns the alien, and she wins. Spoiler. I mean, it blows the alien off into space. It doesn't really burn. It just floats off. Yeah, good point. I wonder if that's going to come up later. In Alien 17. Yeah, maybe. But she finally is able to relax. She has come out on top against the horror movie monster. As she sits back and enjoys her hard-won respite, we hear... It's not just as she sits back. It's at the very moment that she has decisively won. As soon as the engine blows the alien away, switch track to... To the quote-unquote romantic symphony by mid-20th-century American composer Howard Hansen. Mm -hmm. It's symphony number two. Previously discussed on this program as the obvious inspiration for the whole last reel of E.T. the Extraterrestrial a few years after this. Indeed, and as you speculated in that episode, the editor for E.T. was very possibly inspired to pick this for the temp of the end of E.T. from having seen it in The End of Alien. Williams pays homage to this temp. You can hear little motifs out of it that he has kind of worked in, you speculated, as a sort of hat tip to it as he composed his own original music to replace it. But uh, it's not what happens here. <sighs> yeah. Did you read in the liner notes? Very strange. I had always assumed that this was the temp music, and then they did the same thing they did elsewhere in the score, decided to stick with the temp. But the liner notes claim that this was actually something they came up with inspired by a motif in the Goldsmith music, which is so strange. I did read that. I don't quite buy it because I don't yeah. I don't hear that motif as pointing to this Hansen piece. Well, it's a, it points to a different part of the Hansen piece. Goldsmith's cue at this point, the trumpet goes, dun, 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 dun. In Goldsmith's mind, that has to do with the intervals of the main theme here inverted. Not perfectly, but I'm sure that's the idea there. Terry Rawlings, apparently, according to the liner notes, thought, oh, that sounds like this figure from the end of Howard Hansen's Symphony Number no. 2. Hey, what about that piece? <laughs> you know, like, hey, speaking of that, what if we used that? Yeah, the claim there is that he went to an earlier movement of the symphony because this very short trumpet figure reminded him of a later movement of the symphony. I don't know. I think it's more likely that he thought of this piece because indeed what Goldsmith wrote for the end of the movie and for the end title, I think has a similar ethos to the Howard Hansen piece. I think it is romantic. Yeah, Goldsmith's actual end of the movie music resembles the emotions of the music with which they replaced it. 
which is why I always assumed it was the temp music, because this music would have been a very responsible and well-calibrated response for Goldsmith to write this if he had been given that as the temp. But apparently that's not the order. It also would have been, you know, a very interesting choice for the temp if you were then going to allow the composer his own say on it. Yeah, but Goldsmith got to this point, this emotional delivery by himself. I mean, he had a romantic, in his own words, conception of what it means to travel through space in the first place. And here in the end title is when he intended to give that expression its apotheosis. To say that, you know, the nobility of space travel goes on and now we can finally relax back into it. This is really where my blood boils to think that they took this beautiful music that is expressing exactly that and just went with a different piece of music that kind of also expresses that if you put it next to the movie. Yeah, the only place where the Hansen has something that Goldsmith doesn't have is in the initial moments, the completeness of its sigh of victory is bigger than Goldsmith's odd that that was their choice but yes it more completely says well now the movie is over and now we're okay victory it says that faster and more assertively and then and Ridley Scott actually highlights this on the commentary track it has this quiet brass chord that it holds on the final shot as the camera pushes in on Sigourney Weaver in her, you know, Snow White's coffin (laughs) at the end. With a cat curled up at her feet. Right. Ridley Scott says, he says, that's the reason it works beautifully, is that chord being there. Which, that's fine, that chord lines up nicely, but we can tell that this music has nothing to do with the movie. It has always seemed surreal, random, irreconcilable, really. It is almost impossible for me to feel that the emotions of this music end the story of this movie. And maybe that's worked out well for this series in the long run, because it's not even plausibly the ending. So the reason that I made up for myself why they would dare to do this is that they were so committed to the effect of realism and unadorned emptiness that they wanted to confront the audience with and let them do the work on their own, that they couldn't allow that something so romantic and grandiose was actually coming out of this movie. They needed to take something that was (laughs) from somewhere else. They needed that removed to get their heads around having this music there, having music that sounds like this there. They were going for the carefully removed irony of having music that you've heard from somewhere else tell the story here, you know, which is like what we were talking about that Kubrick is always doing, that it's important to Kubrick that the fact that this music isn't from the world of the movie carries its own information, and you're supposed to think about that, you're supposed to fold that into what you're thinking about the movie. So I think they just wanted that removed. They couldn't allow that this was the genuine voice of the movie. 
I think that the movie sort of ends up working for that reason, but I don't really think that they had that level of intentionality about it. I think that what you see in a lot of these choices is an absence of large-scale thinking about what music does in a movie and just a concern for the moments. I don't think the idea that a musical score is a coherent whole was part of the thinking of Rawlings or Scott. I think that they were just trying to make things work one after another. And they got to this point and thought, oh, you know what I think might even work better than this music that was custom written and that we paid thousands and thousands of dollars to have produced for us is this thing off of this LP I got here. And actually, that would be great end credits music. I think that they just blithely did that. And the fact that it doesn't sound like the movie is for us, the viewers, to deal with. But I do think you're right that it actually refrains from making the kind of statement that Goldsmith's end title does, which is that this has meant something and that the thing it has meant is romantic. But this takes us back full circle here. Do you think that that is what it has meant? What do you think this movie is about? (sighs) Yeah, I don't think that that's what this movie is about. See, the interesting thing is, it doesn't feel right to me either. It feels instinctively like that's not what the movie has been. But then when I thought analytically about it, it started to seem like, well, if we were going to raise up the meanings to the surface and give them musical voice... I'm not sure Jerry Goldsmith is actually off the mark. He's just saying the subconscious part out loud. That's what feels wrong. And what if it were withheld until the end credits, which is a thing you see sometimes in thrillers or horror movies, that the romantic voice only, only speaks after the action is over. Now we start to process. Now the healing begins. Is this the correct healing for this movie? I'm not sure it's wrong. It just feels weird that the healing should even be anywhere near the movie. When you earlier mentioned the planets, I read that Ridley Scott's intentions for the score of the movie before they hired Jerry Goldsmith, that he apparently played on set to get people in the spirit, to get Sigourney Weaver all pumped up. Oh yeah, I did see this. Yeah, it was the Tomita arrangement of the planets. Sao Tomita, this uh, synthesizer artist in the 70s, had done a whole album of synthesizer of the planets that he had made like a, he turned it into a sci-fi fantasy. It's got like aliens sort of talking to each other in gibberish voices. Really Scott said that actually gave him the idea to start the movie with the two helmets kind of quote-unquote talking to each other. But yeah, this twisted version of the planets is what he thought this movie was going to sound like. I mean, it's probably banal to point out that, uh, you know, like, why does the computer display project itself onto the faces of people and helmets that are reading it? Uh, you know, like, and why, why is there this enormous room for the computer that has millions of little twinkly lights that couldn't possibly convey any information to anybody? It's just a lot of shiny lights. Fine, fine, I'll let both of those things go for poetic license. But my one real beef that I have with the depiction of the computers in this movie is why, when the letters appear on the screen, do you hear the sound of typing? (laughs) That's mother typing on the other side of the screen. (laughs) Why does mother have a voice at the end, but not the rest of the time? Ask Freud, I guess. 
Yeah, so, you know, at the end of our episodes, we usually play the last thing that you hear in the movie. Yeah. And I think we're going to make an exception in this case. And as we wrap up here, let's hear the original end title, this gorgeous piece by Goldsmith that gives full final voice to that big main theme that got taken out of the main title, that got taken out of various spots throughout the movie. Here it is again at the end, and let's go out on this. Oh, you know, I had an alternate proposal for this. In the commentary, Ridley Scott, when she escapes the Nostromo in the shuttle and she watches it explode because it had a very elaborate (laughs) self-destruct mechanism built into it, it carries around nuclear bombs all the time so that it can be blown up. She leaves and she is safe. At that point, Ridley Scott said, you know, we had a lot of arguments about whether the movie should end here with her blowing up the ship and escaping. And that he argued that, no, the rhythm, the music of the movie has not reached a proper ending. It needs to have a final act. It needs to have a little more. It doesn't feel like it's done to him. I thought, I don't know about that, because it feels more in keeping with the spirit of the movie, the emotional place we get to at that point, where she is alone in this shuttle, just having escaped with her life, What Jerry Goldsmith writes here, this is the only cue in the entire movie that is played in its entirety exactly where he wrote it. And it's really good. It's true. You know, this is her relief, which is certainly calm compared to what came before. But then, what do we hear? I mean, I think for sure that this is the best use of his main theme throughout the body of the movie. There's an emotion on screen for it to gel with. There's something that can receive this romantic statement. Yeah, so you were asking whose theme it was or what it's the theme of, and I said I think it's about surviving in the face of a world with such things in it, and here is where that's what's on her face, that's the action on screen. Certainly this is the best case for that in the movie, yes. Will you also concede that this is the best case for the serpent in the movie? All right, fine. That you hear the alien still breathing. This is still a world with aliens in it, is what that means. Now, if you know the movie, as Ridley Scott says, the music is telling you it's not over yet. Yes, maybe it means this specific alien is in fact hiding a few feet from her, and she's going to fight with it in the next scene. But the movie could end here on this note, it seems to me, and that would be a musically plausible ending for the spirit of the movie, that you get to breathe, but you don't get true relief from that dark seventh. So I thought maybe in some way this is the real end of the Jerry Goldsmith score. Maybe we'll play that at the end of the episode. But we don't have to. We can play the glorious music, too, because uh, <laughs> I just, cause Jerry deserves it. Because Jerry deserves it. I think it should be played. Let's do all our little uh, tidying up chores here uh, as it happens, and our listeners can decide for themselves whether this is about the movie or not. All right. So before we get to the episode coda, you have a closing statement? Yeah, I just want to go back to <laughs> the, the, the couples therapist that I wanted to be for the director and the composer here, you know? These things can be worked out, like having this conversation about what the movie means and how you want to get that across. You know, that's the conversation that should be had with the screenwriter before anything happens, that should be had with the DP before it's shot, that should be had with every part of the movie 
and for our interest, most of all with the composer. And obviously Ridley Scott is a talented and accomplished filmmaker, and obviously Jerry Goldsmith is one of the all-time great film composers. It's a shame that they couldn't sync up, that they couldn't get on the same wavelength, because as rightly beloved as this movie is, I think it could have been even better. I think it could have gotten to a really transcendent place if they had gotten their heads together. You just got to talk. Just talk it out, man. Yeah. On the theme of therapy, I wanted to return to the idea of Freud. Okay. <laughs> I thought we might talk about this more. We ended up not. So I'm just going to throw it in here at the end. I've always had this feeling that science fiction can kind of be broken down in terms of a spectrum between, you know, on one side of the spectrum, science fiction where humanity is warm and safe and good. And it's threatened by these cold, unfeeling machines and merciless logic and then on the other side of the spectrum, sci-fi, where machines are amazing, technology is fantastic and awesome and satisfying and so clean and perfect, but it's threatened by oozy, gooey, messy, awful, flesh, organic glop <laughs> with possible Freudian overtones. <clears throat> I mean, you know, someone can make a fake meme chart of that. It doesn't totally <laughs> hold up, but I think that these are recurring issues in sci-fi. Yeah, like you're saying this movie is a chaotic neutral or what? Yeah, I'm saying this movie is a uh, fairly important founding document for the you got your icky flesh on my nice clean computers subgenre here. <laughs> but Jerry Goldsmith's attitude is going to be on the side of the humans. He can't see it any other way. And so there's just a tension there that, yes, would have had to be very carefully guided with a very clear vision. And obviously that's not how this was approached. He says they only talked like three times. Right. But the other thing I wanted to close with was this score, it's an hour long, longer if you can include the alternate versions of cues that he recomposed. It's an hour of music that essentially enacts the entire tale of Alien with the alien in it, with all of the action depicted. It would be the perfect music for the radio play of Alien. <laughs> and it's no coincidence that Jerry Goldsmith has a special status among the kind of people who like to listen to movie soundtracks. There's a fullness to what he's doing with the music. There's so much of the life and energy and action of the movie composed into it. It's not clear where it should go. You can't play it in concert because it's not quite a concert piece. If it were put in the movie in its entirety and to the fore, it would overwhelm the movie to no one's benefit. Kind of the ideal function for this music is to be a movie soundtrack, which kind of has its own status. It's like an imaginary movie experience that you have while listening to it. This is music that is incredibly rewarding to listen to and imagine your way through a movie. That's slightly different from being an incredible score in a movie, but... The enthusiasm here is very closely overlapping, and I totally get why people love this composition, the score to Alien. It's full of great stuff, and yes, maybe the movie didn't need to have a musical Alien in it, but it's so cool that the soundtrack does. It's so cool. <laughs> a track will start and like, oh my god, there's a monster in my ear. There's, there's something creepy going on. I had a blast listening to it in a way that I really had, I, I had heard this music before. I think I'd listened through it once before, but I hadn't really gotten deep into it. You don't when you watch the movie. If you've just watched the movie, you have not really had the experience of the soundtrack of Alien, <laughs> which uh, is what we've been saying all this time. So 
I give a big thumbs up to this big, and it's big, it's huge. He is a huge orchestra. He's just going full force the whole time. He reportedly told the Academy he absolutely did not want to be nominated for this score because he basically wanted to disown it. It had been such an infuriating experience for him. I think part of the reason it was so infuriating is because he really put a lot into it. There is a lot of his flair that he's always got in this. It's a great one of those. What is that? It's a thing slightly off to the side of the movie, Alien. All right. I sign on for all of that. Here, here. All right. As you said, Jerry Goldsmith is now the person we've done the most of these episodes about. So we're going to give him some time off. If you want a fix of more Jerry Goldsmith, though, go listen to the Goldsmith Odyssey podcast. That's all Goldsmith all the time. Literally all Goldsmith. They're trying to listen to every single thing he ever composed. It's true. Our friends at the Goldsmith Odyssey podcast are making a meticulous survey of everything that Goldsmith ever wrote, starting out with his very accomplished career writing episodes of TV shows in the 50s and 60s. And it's always fascinating. And they're doing important heroic work over there. Yeah, they're digging up stuff that we assuredly will never get to, so... (laughs) Yeah, enjoy. Go check it out. Goldsmith yourself to death over there. (laughs) Hey, Andy. Yeah. Speaking of what the Academy decides to nominate Mm. for best score... No, speaking of that, yeah. Speaking of that... I was just now, yeah. Yeah, I'm just naming what you were speaking of. Uh Uh-huh. I wonder if that'll (laughs) turn out to be a useful thing to have named. The bucket has this episode off. We're not selecting a new score to talk about for our next episode because our next episode is going to be our yearly Oscar episode. The nominations are already out. We're scrambling to watch all these movies already, even as we are making this episode. And uh, yeah, we've got our work cut out for us yet again. Yes, I always look forward to it and then feel a little overwhelmed by it. Yep. But here it comes. Let's dive in. We hope you'll join us then to hear us yammer on about some actual recent movies. And if you want to hear us yammer on about an obscure movie from the past, which is the source for some of this music, check us out on Patreon. We recently started a Patreon, and the other thing that we hope is a draw for people to want to join that community is that we ask our patrons to vote on the films that we pull out of the bucket. Yeah, this is a weird episode for us to promote that because it's not happening right now, but it happens every other episode of the year, just not the Oscar episode. We do a little lottery at this point, and yeah, the lottery is now... Is now populated by the winners of the patron balloting. Right. So yeah, join us there for Freud and more. (laughs) What a draw that is. Golly. Join us there. Still write us a review if you want. We really appreciate that. Check in with us on Twitter at ScoreSettlers if you don't want to interact with us on Patreon, which of course is always fine and dandy. Yes? Yes. It's fine, Andy. Yeah, all right. See you next time. Dig this glorious original Goldsmith end title. Yeah, that's right. Listen to this. It's the end of some really cool movie. I wonder, wonder what movie. No, it's the end of a movie in your mind. And now, this is the end of this podcast episode in your mind.